0: invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 16. We're going to continue on in our series. And as we get started, I do want to just take a moment and we want to acknowledge, we know it's Mother's Day. This is a day where we honor uh, the women in our lives who've had an influence on us. We want to honor our mothers. Um, And if you, like me, had a mom who was a a positive part of your life, it's an easy day for us to honor our moms and, and But for some of you, we know, we want to acknowledge Mother's Day can be a difficult day. It can be a difficult day if perhaps this is, you've recently lost your mother. Maybe for you, you are a mother and you've lost a child. And so sometimes it brings up emotions and memories. Maybe for some of you, you had a bad experience growing up and you didn't have that relationship or even you wish you could be a mom and for some reason it just hasn't happened so we know that we come today with a whole range of emotions and we we want to acknowledge that we want to let you know that you have a church family who loves you in that and and it's a complex day for many and there's a god who loves you there's a church who loves you and we want to walk with you in wherever you are whether it's a joyous day or a difficult day so we just thought it's we we never want to just pass over that because uh, it's important that we know that our god is with us in this so pray with me as we get started god We thank you again For this time. I thank you for the moms in the room for all the women who uh, have an influence on others and who Make such a difference. We're grateful for them And uh, we just ask that you would meet us in this place in our joys in our sorrows and our pain And um, in, in our doubts and our skepticism all of that We just acknowledge you and want to meet you here in your name. Amen All right. So as we think about Mother's Day, sometimes some of you might think, oh, man, my mom had such a big influence on my life or made a difference. But I have a question for you. In addition to your parents, or maybe it's just your parents, but who is someone, when you think back in your life, that you knew was for you? Someone who was in your corner or who was always in the stands, someone that you'd say, like, oh, this person I know was for me. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe a boss, a mentor, maybe a spouse, a sibling, good friend. But who is someone who's been for you? And if we think of that, I was thinking that's one of the things in our lives that is such an important part. To have people in our lives that are for us. I think we're created for relationship. We're created in because our God's a relational God. We're created with the need to have others in our lives. We long for that. We, cra- we crave that and we cherish those things because that's how our God is. And if you think of who is someone who is for me, As we look at this study in the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at, we've been seeing how the church was this unstoppable movement, that it kept growing. It kept growing even with uh, all the uh, opposition from culture, opposition internally, and just as they were navigating what it was like to live the ways of Jesus in a world that wasn't necessarily accepting that, they were kind of wrestling through all that. But one of the themes we see popping up is we find people from all walks of life who find community and they find home in the church. They find people who are for them. And the story that we see today in Acts chapter 16, we're actually gonna see a story of two different women And they have very different experiences, but it shows kind of how God met them in their place and they were able to find significance there. So that's where we are in Acts chapter 16. I wanna invite you to look at it with me. So either open your Bibles or as Matt likes to say, turn on your Bibles, whatever your preference is. And in Acts chapter 16, we're gonna look at starting in verse 11. And verse 11, this is just so you know, where we left off is last week, Paul and Silas, received this Paul had this crazy dream of a guy saying hey come to Macedonia and proclaim the word of God to us here so that's what they're doing it says after setting sail from Troas we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the following day down to Neapolis and from there we went to Philippi which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia a Roman colony we were spending some days in the city. So just so you know, now they're in a town called Philippi. That's the location of where we are today. It's in uh, modern-day Greece, kind of near the border of Turkey. And Philippi it says it was a Roman colony. And the significance of that means that this colony, that if it was particularly Roman in that they didn't they had autonomy as Roman citizens. They weren't under the governorship or anything else, which was very common in the Roman Empire. They, had, uh, they were independent as this city. And almost everyone who lived there was a Roman citizen. In fact, most of them there were retired officers and generals from the Roman uh, army. And they would retire. This is a nice region. The Mediterranean Sea is about 10 miles away. So you have a great climate. And uh, it's a, a nice mountainous region. So it's a very beautiful place to retire and live. And that's, so it's a Roman colony. Now, if it's a Roman colony, it also means that they are loyal to the emperor in Rome. That the emperor is the one that they would uh, give their loyalties to. They were very particularly Roman in their culture. So they would have the worship of all the Roman gods and temples and things like that. And there was a much less uh, presence of any, uh, especially a Jewish community, that which, which is kind of typical in a lot of these regions. is You'd find a small Jewish community, but there's fewer and fewer in places like this. So this is very Roman, so it's worth knowing. That's the area that they moved into. And on the Sabbath day, verse 13, we went outside to the gate to a riverside where we were thinking that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So here's what Paul would normally do when he went to a new city. Is he would find a synagogue. He'd find people who believed in the God of Israel. And he would meet with them. And they would talk about the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And say, hey, look at how all of these scriptures point to us to a belief in Jesus. They point that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. So he always started in the synagogues. Now in this city, it says that they went outside the gate, meaning there was no synagogue in the city. Which means this, that in, the, in Jewish tradition, you couldn't have a synagogue unless you had at least 10 Jewish men. So they didn't even have that many Jewish men there, so there's no synagogue. So they go outside the city, which the second thing to a synagogue is you'd find a place where you'd pray. And they go down by the riverside. Now, water's important to Jewish rituals, so the ceremonial cleansing was a big part of their life. So when they didn't have a synagogue, they would often meet near a river or some sort of water that they could have this ritual cleansing. So they go down there and they find there, and they sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Again, no mention of men. So what we have is a group of women at a women's Bible study or something like that. And a woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira, and she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So, what we have now is we're introduced to this first woman in our story. Her name is Lydia. Now, it's possible her name actually wasn't Lydia because she comes from a region where they make the purple dyes that is called Lydia. The town is Lydia, and it might have been like that's her nickname. She's mentioned twice, both times are only here in um, chapter 16. So, it's possible she had a different name. Doesn't matter. What we know about her is that she's a seller of purple fabrics. So she was a businesswoman and she was successful. These purple fabrics were particularly expensive and she was most likely very good at what she did. So we have this successful businesswoman. Now, we don't know much about her other than that. We'll find out in just a moment that she has a household. The household likely isn't including a husband. It, he, maybe she's a widow or the household could just be Uh, her workers who are part of her her house. They're adopted into her family that way. It's also very likely that she was a former servant or some sort of slave who earned her freedom and now has a successful business. Culturally, that seems to be what she is. But whoever it is, this is a person of great influence and a person who is very successful at what she does. This is a dynamic leader, and her name's Lydia. Now, it says she's a worshiper of God, that means that she was following the God of Israel but had yet, not yet known about Jesus. So as Paul's speaking, I want you to notice this. It says that God opened, the Lord opened her heart to respond to things spoken by Paul. So something God was stirring in her heart. Maybe for some of you in here, you can think of a time when you just knew God was stirring in you. The times when you say, oh man, that sermon today, you wrote it just for me. And by the way, I never write a sermon just for you. Well, okay, sometimes there's a few of you. But for the most part, we just trust that God's going to use our words to speak. And so that's God opens our hearts to respond, to hear sometimes. And that's what's happening here. Now, I want to point something out that this will be significant for this story. That we, I believe, and Scripture talks about a spiritual world that we live in, that God is actually at work within us. But there's also other Spirits at work in this world. That's very biblical to believe that there's other things. Some might call them lesser gods or small g gods. You might call them demons or spiritual forces or whatever it is. But there's also other forces at work. I want to show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul's writing, he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not yet believe, so they, or those who don't believe, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's this idea in scripture that there are times when we are blinded to see the truth. And Paul would write, he's writing here, that the God of this age, that there's some, some small lesser God who's at work, who will literally blind us from seeing the truth, the light of the gospel. There's so many times we look at the life of Jesus and I think, what, what's, how could you not be compelled to follow Jesus? Look at this person. Look at the ways and the words of Jesus. That's so compelling. But some say, I don't want anything to do with that. And if you really understand the life of Christ, it's hard to know why we'd reject Jesus. But we know that there's spiritual forces at work. So just like there are forces to prevent us, we also see that God is opening the hearts of the people around. So God works against those forces as well. Verse 15. Now, when, she, when Lydia and her household had been baptized, so she's moving fast. You see, this is a dynamic woman, right? So she, her, her uh, heart's open to the Lord. She and her whole household are now baptized. They convert to Christianity right away. And she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, she convinced us that this is a good idea. So right away, she becomes a Christian. She says, I'm going to practice Christian hospitality. You guys stay here. Use my home as a base for ministry. We find by the end of Acts chapter 16, after next week's message, that her house is kind of like a house church. It's a church plant. So whether she's the leader of it or just the one who's opening her home, we don't know, but she has a role here. And by the end of chapter 16, it says that, in her house, all the brothers and sisters were meeting and gathering. So this she's moving quickly and seeing we're gonna we're gonna see this Christian thing take off because Jesus is making a big difference in her life. So that's the first woman in her story, Lydia. This successful businesswoman, a dynamic leader, her eyes, her heart is open to the Lord, and she's already doing things. That's such a great story to see on Mother's Day. It's such a good reminder of women, the power that you have. Uh, to make a difference in so many people's lives. And this is elevated in Scripture and spoke about. Again, whenever you hear a story like this in Scripture, in a culture that de- devalued women, it shows that Christianity was super progressive. So, which I know you hear that all the time these days, right? So, anyway, uh, but it really was evaluating and elevating women here and, and showing that she made a big difference in her whole household and in the city of Philippi. Okay. Okay. Chapter 16, let's meet the next woman in our story. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave woman who had a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing great profit to her masters by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us and cried out repeatedly, saying, "'These men are bondservants of the Most High God "'who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation.'" Now she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, and he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was suddenly gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities, and they brought them to the chief magistrates, and they said, these men... Jews as they are, are causing our city trouble. They are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to practice since we are Romans. (laughs) So here's the next part, the next one we meet. Here's a girl, a slave girl, who has a spirit of divination who's making money for her owners And how we talk about this in modern day, we'd probably say this is an example of human trafficking. This is some people who own this girl, and they're making a profit off her. They care about the money, not the girl. But let me tell you a little bit about her. This is interesting. So here it says she has a spirit of divination. This word divination... Is actually not that at all it's a Greek word for pythos and so we have spirit of divination in Greek here is the spirit of pythos it's where we get our word Python or a snake so and it's only used here in scripture to describe her now what's the significance of that I'm glad you asked so the significance of that is the spirit of pythos there was this region in greece called delphi it was a few hundred miles from there and in delphi there was this belief and this is greek mythology so you ready for it here's some greek mythology that apollos or or he who is a son of zeus so the son of god the god most high that he killed this python this giant snake it fell into the rocks and it died and it started decomposing and these strange fumes came out of the ground where the snake uh, was killed. So they built a temple to Apollos over, uh, to Apollo over this area. And inside the temple was where these fumes came from a rock in the ground. And geologists to this day, it doesn't happen anymore, but they've discovered where there's some underground, Uh, water that moves, and it probably was releasing this gas that essentially kind of could put you into a trance. It was the the gas gas that would be released there, was where they built the temple over that, okay? Part of the Bible, right? You guys ready for this? This is, you know, deep stuff. Greek mythology. But in that now, they built the temple, and in the inside, they had what was called the Oracle of Delphi. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. This picture here is, the, this is Delphi. So this is the region that we're talking about. And this is inside the temple to Apollo. And in this inner circle here is where the Oracle of Delphi took place. Okay? Where they would have this priestess who would stand there. And on the next slide, this is some ancient Greek art that was discovered. And this is depicting what happened inside there. On the left is a woman um, who was the priestess who would give you the oracle of Delphi. So the oracle, she was called a Pythia. In other words, she had the spirit of Pythos. So she was, and she was channeling Apollo. And pa- Apollo is the god, not only the son of Zeus, but he also was a god of prophecy. So here's the belief in this region. They believed that Apollo would possess the priestess, and she could give you your fortune. Now, everyone all the way back to Alexander the Great went to her, to the series of the priestess. He went there to get a prophecy spoken. He wanted to know if he'd conquer the world. She wouldn't tell him, so he drug her out of the temple by her hair, and she said, yes, you will, and he said, that's what I wanted to hear. True story, and uh, Nero, Emperor Nero, went to there to find a prophecy, and uh, so we know that it was prevalent in the region, So now you have the slave girl a few hundred miles away who has a spirit of divination described as the same, a She had the spirit of Pythos. So they believed that she had this same spirit or whatever it was that was happening in Delphi. That was the belief of the area. Now look at what she was proclaimed. And she was possessed by Apollo, who was the son of the most high god, Zeus. Is what they believed. But what did she proclaim? Look what she says. Here's Paul and Silas. They are servants of the God Most High. Zeus? No. Jesus. They come to proclaim to you the way of life and salvation. So what a bizarre story. All of a sudden, here's someone who they believed was possessing the power of their son of God, who's actually proclaiming, no, actually the God most high is Jesus, who they're talking about. These guys are the real deal, and they have the path of life and salvation. So here in the book of Acts, which just seems so bizarre, God, again, turns things around. He uses the, the spirits in this world to proclaim His name to those who are listening. Now, when you hear this too, it says Paul after a few days got annoyed. But she actually—that was a good marketing campaign, wasn't it? She's like, "Oh yeah," she's saying who we are. So it's a little bizarre. Like, why did they wait a few days? We don't really know. Could have been that he was saying this is great advertisement. Hey, any you know any publicity is good publicity. Could have been that. More likely, I think he was thinking, oh, if we deal with this right now, it's going to thwart our whole ministry here in Philippi. And what you're going to hear next week is what happens as people get stirred up, as we see that once they saw their prophet was gone, they, they seized Paul and Silas. So it could be that they were waiting and say, we can't do this yet. But I want to point out the word annoyed in there. <laughs> It says after a few days he was annoyed. Probably a better translation, it's used only a couple times in both in the book of Acts. It's really disturbed. He was disturbed within him. I really believe that Paul, looking at what's happening here and seeing this slave girl who's treated as property, who wasn't valued by her owners for anything other than the profit they could make, he was disturbed he, was, he waited a few days. Maybe it was out of, again, strategically, do we want to stir this up yet? But eventually just got to him and says, here's a girl who's oppressed, who's owned, who's being treated like junk. And notice what he does. He turns and he says to the spirit. It was great as a teaching team when we were studying this and looking at this. God, Paul doesn't address the girl. He doesn't say, you're the problem. He dresses the real problem, and it was the spirit that was possessing her. He turns to the spirit and says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her, because his heart was breaking for her in this situation. He was disturbed. This is not how a valued person, in the created, created in the image of God, should ever be tra- treated or dealt with. He was disturbed. So they finally, they cast the demon out, and he knew what was going to happen. It says as soon as he did that, her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone. And a little side note, Luke, in writing in the Greek, actually was trying to be fu- not funny, but a play on words. He used the exact same word for said when the spirit came out of her. He also said their profit came out of them. So as soon as she, she was no longer possessed, they no longer could make money. And they were using her for fortune-telling. Which, again, another thing, in Greek, fortune-telling is the same word for ventriloquist. So they believed that some other voice was coming through her. So when they saw their prophet was gone, they grabbed Paul and Silas and they began saying, these men are teaching things that are unlawful for us and go against our customs. Our pride as being Romans. And it's really interesting that the girl was proclaiming the truth about Paul and Silas, and these owners are making up stuff about them. But so, they cast the demon out. And then in verse 22, the crowd joins in the attack against Paul and Silas. The chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they'd struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely. He, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And next week, we're going to pick that up and look at what happens in the prison. But one thing we see that when Jesus changes your life, when Jesus enters into a situation, brings light to the chaos and disorder around you, often it creates more chaos. When Jesus enters in and changes, it upsets the systems. Here, it's upsetting It's upsetting the social order. It's upsetting their commerce. It's changing the way people were thinking about things. Jesus will disrupt your world. I want to promise you that. You okay with that? Jesus will disrupt your world. But when he does, he's bringing life and not taking life. But it doesn't always feel that way. So what do we learn? I just have a couple things from this story of the two women. I want to just point out to you. They're in this story. The first thing I really see here is, I want us to recognize as one, God's heart for all people. Notice God's heart for all people. There's a successful businesswoman who is a seeker and worshiper of God. This is a, this is a perfect person. You think, of course God has a heart for her. She's a dynamic leader. She's already seeking me. She's leading her household well. She has a good reputation. So, God has a heart for her, of course. But then you have this oppressed slave girl who's being treated like garbage by people around her. Her whole life, all she is, is a commodity. She's oppressed. And God has a tremendous heart for her, too. I wonder if some of you feel like maybe, maybe you're not oppressed in the same way as the slave girl was, but maybe there's things in your life where you feel un, not unvaluable because of whatever's oppressing you. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a sin struggle that you just can't get over. Maybe it's a fear or whatever it is, you feel like this is making me unworthy or unacceptable to God. But he, I want you to know he has a heart for all People, that is a heart of our God. In Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, it says this: "That the Lord is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. The heart of God is patience towards you wanting all to come to repentance. He values you. He values the people in your life. Those you've been praying for for years. Those you say like, Lord, are you ever really going to do anything in this person's life? You can't outpatient God. This is actually the same passage in 2 Peter where he says, to God, uh, one day is like a thousand years. In other words, what we think is forever, God's like, oh, I, I can be way more patient than you. And what's he patient with? He's patient because his ultimate desires that we have a relationship with him. He can wait. He can wait. He can keep pursuing. His heart isn't, there's not a point in which our God says, you know what? I've had enough of you. We've had the same conversation a thousand times. Every Friday night you say, Lord, I'll never do this again. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) That's not our God. He says, oh, no, no. I'm patient towards you. I desire that no one perishes, but all come to know me. So we see that in this story. God's heart for all people. The next thing is this. God's power over all things. We see this in this story. See, God had the power to stir the heart of Lydia that she would respond. God has a power to stir your heart and my heart in the times when we need to respond. We we need to hear. He has a power to do that. He also has a power over the spiritual forces in this world. The things that we think are coming down upon us and and we think that have power jesus has more i wonder how many of us this last year myself is included have there been things that we've gone through that you kind of forgot that god has power over this last 12 months 14 months how many times this last year did you think oh whatever. This pandemic is in control. Or this health instructor or whatever their health, that's not the right word. The health people, they're in control. That is not very eloquent what I just said. (laughs) Maybe it's the governor's in control or the president's in control. Or what if we don't get the right politician? Then our country is going to fall apart. Or maybe our country already has fallen apart. Forget it. Now the stock market's going to fall apart. What are the things that we have elevated this year above Jesus? And we forgot that that is so not the God of our Bible. In fact, Jesus says, or Paul says, writes this about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. I have it on the screen for you. It says this, God exalted Jesus and gave him the name which is above every other name. In Scripture, when you have name, That word name said, I'll give you this name that was, this possessed all of who you are and your identity and your power. So Jesus had the name that was bigger than Apollo. Jesus had the name that was bigger than COVID. Jesus has a name that's bigger than our economy. He has a name that's bigger than the president of the United States. Amen? Jesus has a name that's above all names, above your health issues, above your work issues, above your relational issues. Jesus' name is above that, and his power, God's power, is able to work on anything you are dealing with. Is that good news for you today? And it's been so easy, even especially this last year, to forget that his name It's bigger than every other name. But in this story, we see God throwing down and saying, no, 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 no. Spirit of Pythos? Apollo? Nah. My name. My name has the power to change lives. So as we end our time here today, a couple questions for you are this. When we see that God has a heart for all people, a question for you is this. Who are the people that you are for? Who are the people who need to know that you're for them, that God is for them? Who are the people in your life that just need to know that there's a God who has a heart for them? Our prayer for you as a church is that all of us grow in our heart for people. We want to have a heart for our city And we need our hearts to grow. If God's going to do something through us, we need our hearts for others to grow. This means your heart for your neighbor who has the barking dog. We want it to grow. This means that your heart for the little league coach who's way too aggro and who's the one team you want to beat, that your heart, if that was your story, that your heart, we want it to grow for them. Who are you for? Who needs to hear that God is for you, for them? And my challenge is that we have at least one, but I would say let's all have five people that we're always praying for. That we say we're praying that God would speak to their heart, open their heart to hear, and give us opportunities. Let's invite them into a church family who will love them exactly how they are. Not to say clean up your act and then come, but come and let God clean up your act. Okay? What if we did that? So who are you for if God has a heart for all people? The other one, if God's power is over all things then what situation in your life right now do you need to trust that God is able to make something good in it? What's going on in your life right now that you need to trust that God is over it? Challenge you to think about it. Write it down. Make it your challenge this week to pray and believe that Jesus' name is greater. As we end our time, we're going to end with a time of what we call communion. And uh, if you did not receive one of these on your way in, we have a few people who will uh, just put, slip your hand up. They'll bring one to you. Uh, we have some greeters around who have extra. We have some here in the middle section. Oh, middle section. Probably all came in late. No, it's am kidding. <laughs> so communion for us is a time when we remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's this ancient tradition here. Where we start off with the wafer, this piece of bread. And when we take the bread, this bread represents the body of Christ. And it's not just that Jesus died, but it's also a belief that he lived. And his ways matter. He gave us a perfect example of what it looked like to live in the image of God. God in our new selves, our new creation. This was what Jesus did. So when we take communion, we're remembering that Jesus lived a real life. He walked on earth in the flesh. He died a death that you paid a price that you and I couldn't possibly pay. But he also rose again. So we're gonna take the bread and this bread as we take it is our way of saying, Jesus, we remember what you did. We're grateful for your life. That you live, the death you die, and your resurrection. So let's take the bread and remember the body, the life of Christ that was broken for you. And when Jesus began the rite of communion, at this thing called the Last Supper, he took a cup, and the cup in that meal represented a covenant that God would make with Israel, and Jesus said, it's for my people now. And the covenant was a covenant. He said, "Poured out in my blood. So through his death, it would be this new promise, this covenant that he would give. And the covenant was based on the fact that he would give us new hearts, that our old selves are gone. And because of the work of Christ, we have new selves. So when we take the cup, the juice, it's a reminder that Jesus paid the price. He, and what he accomplished was enough. It was enough to make us new. And now we are new people. And even the sins you struggle with, the doubts you have, all of that, that doesn't define you. Jesus' life is what defines us now. You are saints because of what Christ has done. That's what the covenant is. If you struggle with sin, just know you're a saint who sins. That sin isn't what defines you because of this covenant. So we take the juice now and remember the covenant that Jesus made, the promise he made that said, my work in you is enough. Let's take this together. And pray with me, God, we thank you that you have a heart for all people. We thank you that, Lord, your name is above all names. And God, you've been doing this They've been part of this unstoppable movement for thousands of years, and God, we're a part of it today. So would you continue to do your work in us, God, and remind us of who you are and who we are because of your great work. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.